Hello, and welcome to another episode of What's on the Pile. I'm Nathan Besner, and joining me is Shane Lee. What's up? Jane Belcastro. Hello. And Jenner. Present. It's Caro et Genet night with the enigmatic artistic stylings of Marc Caro and Jean-Pierre Genet as we delve into two of their cinematic offerings. First, Delicatessen, a slice-of-life post-apocalyptic comedy where a young man applies for a new job at a fucked-up apartment building. (laughs) Followed by The City of Lost Children, a sort of steampunk science fiction fantasy about a little thief, her friend one, and their search for his little brother. Uh, Who's Piles? Or piles were these on? These were both on my pile. I hadn't seen either. I think I'd seen Delicatessen. I'm pretty sure I kind of recognized the whole little cow can thing. Yeah. I I think I'd seen the bed spring scene. I I definitely have seen that somewhere. But I think that was the trailer, right? Yeah, that was the trailer. Yeah, that seemed familiar as well. I had seen these both, but it was a very long time, and uh, it actually seriously changed my opinion of the second one, so that's uh, something we'll come back to. Interesting. All right. Um, well, let's uh, let's get into it. Um, Shane, uh, what, yep. what do you think of uh, Delicatessen? So this is going to sort of apply to both of these movies. So I, I remember when uh, Amelie came out in, like, 20 years ago. And, like, everyone was just gaga over that movie. I saw it, and I was like, that was all right. Uh, I don't know if I got it or not. I don't know if there was was that much in that movie to get. Um, Watching these two movies, I feel like there's something about this style that doesn't stick in my brain for some reason. Like, I'm not saying I dislike the movies, but, like, for instance, like, I saw Fast 9 a couple weeks ago, and I don't remember a thing about those movies, but <laughs> as, as I was watching them, I was engaged, I, I was interested, and then they just left my brain. These two movies, as I was watching them, I felt like I was, like, clawing at ice or glass, like, trying to just grasp what was going on, trying to grasp what the, what the filmmakers were trying to tell me. Uh, so something with these movies just didn't click. Like, after, you know, I make notes when I watch these movies. After, like, 20 minutes of Delicatessen, I just stopped taking notes because I didn't know what to write down. And, again, that's not <laughs> to say that I didn't like it. Uh, but, uh, but I mean, I'll be interested. You didn't feel like it gave you a lot to hold on to. Yeah, so I'll be interested to, to hear what you guys have to say about it. Because there were things I liked, uh, for sure. Like, I love the opening credits, uh, you know. I mean, I know that sounds like damning with faint praise, but, I mean, it was very, very cool style-wise. It um, was. Oh, I'll I'll freely admit that uh, I, my love comes down to Mark Caro more than Janae, really, because I I love his set design. I I mm-hmm. love the way he he builds a set and the backgrounds can have miniatures and it just uh, he can breathe life into into a set the way uh, it, a way in which nobody else I can think of does. Um, his art direction is gorgeous. It's even gorgeous on. Uh, uh, Alien Resurrection, which uh, I is a movie I actually like, but has some faults. We'll say. Uh, uh, no, uh, the uh, I'm not sure he was actually credited aside from a, a bit of design work on uh, on Resurrection. Yeah. Uh, I think Resurrection is a- an interesting instance of showing that these two guys were better together. Uh, as opposed to one guy working for the other for a couple of weeks as a favor. 
Uh, but yeah, no, I, I'll absolutely agree that uh, while it's occasionally kind of visually compared uh, with, uh, well, particularly Brazil, but Terry Gilliam in general, I think Caro's uh, work, especially on uh, City of Lost Children, is uh, kind of stands alone. It's, uh, it's, it's beautiful design work, but between the two and thinking about the careers that both of these guys had uh, afterwards... I really think that they were uh, better together than they were apart. Although I did, I, I did quite like Amelie. I did uh, too. No. And I, I'll tell you what I think the deal is with Amelie. It's Fight Club for girls. So. <laughs> 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 and so I, I, I do love that. I, I love that whole. But anyway, we, we're not talking about Amelie. I, but I do like the whole philosophy of you know just get out there and do it. Don't wait. Yeah, I, I don't remember the movie at all. I just I saw it once when it first came out, and then. Um, remember not being that impressed and then kind of moved on. But, uh, you know, I, I also did see the, the whole Terry Gilliam influence here and, and then was not surprised to find out that apparently Terry Gilliam was the one who brought Delicatessen to the U.S. Like, I think it was released as, like, Terry Gilliam Presents or something like that. I think I vaguely recall that. Uh, I don't know. This uh, uh, Delicatessen was an early uh, Miramax release when it was still under the Paramount umbrella, so it was actually quite difficult to get for a while there until they you know, finally ended up putting those things sell-through, and then I ended up catching it on VHS. Uh, which I think the VHS at the 4-3 aspect ratio may have actually had preferable framing to the eventual Lionsgate DVD that we ended up, uh, in my case, re-watching uh, for uh, viewing this evening. But uh, the the meticulousness of the visual design i i'm, I'm with you nate i really think that uh, that uh, the visual elements are a lot more caro than Janet. uh Janet was uh, as i understand it more sort of the director of actors and the general you know director of the themes and you know the script more uh, more than anything else uh but the the, the visual design uh, I, th I think Caro should have gone on to a, a more impressive uh, directorial career than uh, than he did. Uh, although his uh, little scene solo directorial debut, Dante One, aside from missing a measure of coherence in the screenplay, ha, uh, is again visually a very impressive little film. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely can't fault any of the visuals in either of these movies. I mean, that's something that was. Definitely arresting every moment. I'd like to know what Jeanette, if he's directing the actors, like what he tells them. Like, just shove your face in the camera and mug for like 30 <laughs> seconds. <laughs> like, like sweat a lot and just put just... your face as close to the camera as possible. That's Dominique. Have... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Dominique. Dominique Pinon. That thing you do, do that thing in front of the camera. Oh, he has a great face. <laughs> oh, yeah. he does. Uh, oh, he's, he is a gorgeous, gorgeous, weird little man. Um, <laughs> And, and yeah. he was one of the really great discoveries of uh, of both of these pictures, and one of the, uh, 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 if anything, seeing him having a few moments of byplay in City of Lost Children, I think may actually make me appreciate uh, uh, the uh, 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 the sort of sidekick relationship uh, that he had with uh, with Ron Perlman uh, in that film as well. But <laughs> we're probably getting ahead of ourselves. It's just it's very difficult to speak about these two films as separate entities, as it's I true. think is bo borne out by their sort of cult status for the last, good lord, you know, 25, 26, you know, 30 years. So well, we, uh, Jane, Jane and I had the horrific realization that uh, uh, the other day that we can now refer to movies made in 1990 and 1991 as classics. 
Yeah. <laughs> so, sort of in the way that we could refer to movies made around 1970 or 1971 as classics around the turn of the millennium. What we're saying oh, oh, is we're getting old. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's like it's like the music from our teenage years is now classic rock. Like Nirvana is classic rock. Yeah, now, you're gonna hear which... that in the Kroger. You're just gonna hear it while you're yeah. wheeling yeah. through the through the the aisles with the cart. Yeah. Oh wow, okay, yeah, there's that song I used to love. That I it's... thought was so hardcore. Okay. Yeah, some, somebody suggested that if Bowling for Soups 1985 were released now, it would be 2002, and I'll just leave now. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I don't think it's, I, I think you're right. It is uh, difficult to talk about these two films uh, separated because uh, because Caro and Janae, w once you start talking about them, you kind of have to talk about all their work um, and, and comparatively, uh, their design work and uh, who they work with in the films themselves. Like uh, uh, they work with uh, Darius Kanji. They got yes. really- yes really lucky there <laughs> to get uh, one of the yeah. great cinematographers well uh it was uh well i mean it was before he really had that much of a reputation but uh i mean obviously they brought him along or uh, certainly Janet brought him along for uh for alien resurrection and a lot of the cinematography was not one of the things you can fault about that film right uh but uh yeah no con nobody does sepia tones better than kanji and that was definitely another thing that stood out a lot more than it had on my previous viewing for uh, for delicatessen the, yeah, we uh, were wondering if it was supposed to be. I mean, did you guys feel there was a lot of sepia tone to the uh, it, to your copies? I uh, oh, yeah, I yeah. It's a very it's a very yellow film. the mm -hmm. The color palette of uh, like the color palette of City of Lost Children is is green and uh, and red. The color palette of Delicatessen is a striking yellow across the board. You'll see it in shirts. You'll see it in paintings on the walls and it's all over the place and typically in in color theory or at least the color theory that i learned um yellow kind of equates to pestilence or or plague and uh i always i kind of got the feeling that uh caro was trying to elicit that sort of uh that sort of feeling from the post-apocalypse yeah so i actually have a question for jenner did the opening scenes or maybe just the whole palette of the uh the sepia tone. Did that remind you at all of Tarkovsky's Stalker? At least the opening Absolutely scenes. Absolutely, that? that reminded me of Tarkovsky's Stalker. It was, you know, Tarkovsky's Stalker by way of Terry Gilliam. Uh, interestingly, the thing that particularly struck me was I remembered a much more sort of naturalistic color palette from the old Miramax VHS release, which I probably or Paramount Miramax VHS release. To the point where I'm wondering if they didn't basically take the sepia filtration off of the uh, master for the original U.S. release, because I didn't remember. I remembered hearing that it was very sepia, but I remembered from my previous viewing, which admittedly was a long ass time ago, not thinking that it was that sepia. But it definitely came thundering back with uh, at least the digital transfer that I saw, which was, I think, the 2008, I guess, uh, Lionsgate uh, special edition. So yeah, no, it, it definitely had uh, a bit of uh, uh, stalker, particularly that uh, that sort of visual quality. Well, when you're doing post-apocalypse, you can't leave that out of the conversation. No, no, no. That's uh, uh, I don't know if it otherwise functions as a direct influence, aside from the you know sort of 
strange, uh, you know, prophylactic uh, 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 attires that the, uh, the well, the, the prophylactic attire that the underground uh, team, I guess, uh, was probably the single most Gilliam-esque uh, aspect of the movie, yeah. aside from the feints toward amusing, quasi-silent, comedic, just with sound, uh, visual design. But yeah, uh, yeah, no, I like. But uh, uh, definitely the, you know, nobody has had a bath in about five years. Uh, visual aspect, except for maybe that one person who just kind of you know stands out in that regard. Uh, definitely felt uh, a, a little stalkerish. Although I'm not sure if it was necessarily a conscious thing, directly for stalker so much as lots and lots of other stuff that was influenced by stalker. Well, Aurora def- definitely had a bath at one point. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> she, she was she was my favorite character. I just loved all those. Yeah, guys. yeah, and, and she was sort of unnecessary and yet fantastic. I, I, you didn't really need her for the story, but she was just like this little bit of comedy relief. Well, I guess there was quite a lot of comedy relief, but <laughs> but yeah, she was great. Well, as much as anything else, that points up the sort of slice of life aspect of the movie. I mean, yes, there is a plot. It's you know. How is our agreeable protagonist going to avoid becoming the lunch of everybody else in the building? Hmm. Uh, at, at the same time, it's the vignettes uh, that either do or don't carry the film across. Uh, personally, I, I think I actually commented uh, 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 to you on this, Jane. Aside from the you know, sheer, watery, bizarro majesty of all of the, uh, 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 the sewer stuff, I thought that that subplot was largely unnecessary. Uh, I mean, yes, it ended up having its function in the uh, climax, but I don't think it particularly works. It just gives us a, a bunch of a bunch more weirdos to look at. But unlike the weirdos in the apartment building, most of them are in no way particularly endearing. Well, no, they aren't. But they were supposed to save um, our hero, whose name escapes me. Well, exactly. Dominique Pignon. Yeah, we. I mean, they were. She had to have some help from the outside. Well, exactly. They were. They were. They were a function of the plot, but they didn't really register particularly. As I had completely forgotten that those guys were in the movie. I had completely forgotten in the years since I had previously seen it that that was even an element of the picture. I actually you know, find the troglodytes because uh, that's that's what they're called, right? Troglodytes. They practice like troglodytism. Or troglodytes uh, or something to that. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> I, just, um, I just call them the troglodytes, you know, like the obscure, you know, 70s soul classic. Yeah. Yep. They, they It kind of reminded me of the uh, Cyclops from City of Lost Children. They, oh, yeah. They serve a, a similar purpose, uh, only I think the Cyclops are much more interesting visually. Abs- well, I think they were sort of more interesting as a plot element as well. Yeah. They had they had powers. They so. they they feel like a less endearing but more interesting refinement of the same sort of general idea. Yeah, yeah. And an, an, an underground organization with its own agenda that you know happens to be uh, happens to run into uh, the main plot, but doesn't particularly have anything to do with it aside from it happens to sh- uh, to uh, to, uh, to you know run into uh, uh run i'm <laughs> drawing a blank here <laughs> i'll just interrupt you then because to me they well they were sort of the the vegans of the movie they didn't eat meat uh they didn't eat people and then you had your uh well your cannibals who were more than willing to eat a person even if it was their mother-in-law or mother 
just because they wanted to eat me. <laughs> and it seems hey, like it's, it's one a, of my pet subjects. You, so. you know, the, you were you were who I was thinking of when I pitched this movie. I, I was like, oh, Jane's gonna like this. Yeah, I, well, I think I'd seen it. I'm pretty sure yeah. I had. So, but it, fantastic. I loved it. Um, I will uh, throw in a little bit of uh, when we were talking about scenery and everything like that and different parts of it. Um, I kept thinking of the whole building as like a body, including the underground, the bowels where our little frogs lived. And, you know, you had the, uh, um, you know, the, the sexual organs were, you know, the, uh, the, I would assume that it was the family with all the kids, <laughs> but you know, it could have been, but you know what I'm saying? I, it, the whole thing felt like it was, um, you know, like, uh, what's her name? The girl, the girl, uh, oh, Julie, Julie, Julie. Julie. <laughs> I, I kind of thought of her as the brain. I mean, she was up, at, she lived on the top floor and, you know, um, but then again, it, it just felt like it to me, like a body the way they would show everything working together and the sounds and the metronome ticking at the same time. So everybody sort of oh, yeah. worked yeah. together. Yeah, yeah. Le Boucher, cool. of course, uh, definitely being the stomach. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, I I love that scene with the musical build up where they're all in sync. That that was yeah. incredibly yeah. well done. To to me, that sort of established the whole building as like a, you know, as Jane said, a body, but you know, like a family. To for in simpler terms, yours is nicer. Um, yours is a much nicer description. No, but I think I think yours works too. I think mine's just mine was more obvious. Uh, but I like the whole body metaphor. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. Do, does that make uh, Does that make Howard Vernon with his frogs and snails the salivary glands? I'm not entirely sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, here's the thing about the frogs and the snails. Those are both, you know, uh, um, what's the word? Sl slurs for French people. So <laughs> I was like, that's kind of. They're also also both delicious. Well, yeah, I are. haven't eaten. I, oh, I, I did have snails once. I do like. I do not like snails. I do like frogs. But uh, I, what I particularly like just ne needed to get the shout out here that the th one of the things that I did remember from my previous viewing, and indeed one of the things that had sold me on this movie in the first place, was, albeit in a relatively small role, the presence of uh, of uh, Jess Franco's favorite actor, uh, Howard Vernon, as the weirdo with the uh, with the submerged or with with the room that's all shower. Uh, <laughs> That that was one of the bits that uh, stuck out. I mean, it's a small role, but it, it really made an impression on me back in the day, and uh, I, I loved uh, I loved revisiting it here. At the risk of completely short circuiting everything else we were talking about, I apologize. <laughs> I think that was my fault. I think I did that. <laughs> um, no, no, I, I I like your body metaphor. I don't know is that I have quite assigned one to oneness uh, to all of it. I think multiple characters may be standing in. For multiple aspects of uh, of the brain, uh, like you, know, you could say, Julie is the ego, uh, and uh, Dominique Pignon uh, is uh, is uh, the super ego, and uh, the uh, the uh, Le Boucher is the id, and it still kind of works in its own right. It's true, but it doesn't have that actually sort of actually check me earthy. I mean, because bodies yeah. are. You know. Well, I'm just saying it's a question of how you slice it. I mean, at the same time, the two little kids, the little agents of chaos, there uh, <laughs> may also represent the id, just in a different uh, in a different aspect. Those guys were great. Yeah, they were my favorite <laughs> characters. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Shane, your favorite character was Aurora. 
Yeah, I, well, I mean, she wasn't that much of a character, but just the, the every time she showed up, I'm like, oh, this is going to be a fun setup, fun, uh, like, and then suicide there's setup. And Ruth Goldberg yeah. devices yeah. for They're trying really... to kill herself. That, that's just it. It's, uh, you, that's what I noticed about these two movies is everything is so elaborate. They can't just mm-hmm. get to point A, from point A to point B. No, they have got to go through all the letters and all the numbers <laughs> and then come back. <laughs> and, and I would still take that absolutely as being probably Caro's signature on uh, on the movie, even though there is a certain get from point A to point B quality in Alien Resurrection. Uh, the actual journey there, aside from the sets, uh, was uh, fairly straightforward, whereas in this case, there's always that extra nuance to it. And uh, the it, it, uh, it, def- it definitely feels like the work of a graphic designer. Specifically, the work of a graphic designer who uh, also, you know, did artwork for, you know, Metal Erlang and uh, that sort of thing uh, before ending up in films. I love the use of wide-angle lenses on close-ups. Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's all they do. They, they love to, to, get, to get a close-up with a, with a 14-millimeter lens. That's their bread and butter. That's how all close-ups should be. Just completely <laughs> distorting the face and making it like, look even wilder. That's, that's, yeah, that's oh, the I mean, spot. Uh, it definitely feels like a lot of the movie was shot through the, uh, through the peephole in an apartment door. So that, you know, definitely kind of works. It's mm-hmm. just that, that sort of same perspective uh, spread throughout, uh, you know, everybody's appearance. But going, going back to Shane's line about Aurora, uh, I mean, the thing was, if you made a movie of the plot of this movie, it would probably be about 35 minutes long at the high side. It's all of the ancillary bits of business, like the Aurora subplot, that really make the whole thing work. I still think that, I, I, I'll, I'll agree with you, I think that that's the funniest part of the movie. Even though, I mean, seriously, poor Aurora, uh, but... Uh, oh, getting the, uh, those ghostly voices trying to get her to commit suicide. Oh. And of course, it turns out it's just the asshole roommate of the guy who's in love with her upstairs. <laughs> <laughs> I thought they were brothers for some reason. Ah, uh, I, I don't think they were particularly defined their relationship. No, they didn't. Uh, so I, it, I guess that's just my head cannon. Uh, no, they're coworkers. Yeah, they're definitely coworkers. They're definitely coworkers. Uh, one of them is Rufu, uh, <laughs> who of, who of <laughs> course. <laughs> Also turned up in a memorable role in uh, the City of Lost Children, but uh, yeah. what were they making? The one guy, the guy would drill holes in this thing. The other yeah. guy would use a tuning fork, and, and then, then he would determine the cow. The cow. No. The cow goes. Yeah, they have oh. some with sheep. I mean, these were big when I was a little kid, and uh, and earlier. Yeah, I had one of but, those things. Okay, yeah, I'm not familiar with those. I drove my mom crazy with. Them. <laughs> 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 I think they got hidden in her closet more than once. <laughs> yeah, I, I like that, that that it's basically a poke a post apocalypse if the po- if the apocalypse had taken place in the in the mid sixties. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, sort of... maybe the early sixties, possibly the late fifties. Very very fallout in a way. <laughs> you know, you know, one thing I noticed was so in in many scenes there's there's constantly like a TV on in the background, and then during the climax when they're fighting on the roof, that reminded me of the Cable Guy, which came out like. <laughs> Five years later, yes. I, I'm wondering if I, I'm wondering if, if Ben Stiller kind of stole that from this movie because it's very similar where they're they're fighting on the roof with you know there's like lightning or whatever and they're playing with the antenna and then the TV downstairs is, is switching around 
It was an um, homage. Well, I, reco- yeah. I recall around the time this came out, it did pretty much have an instant cult following, which uh, which only got cemented with uh, with City of Lost Children. Uh, it, it's interesting the career that both of the that both of the you know directors, such as they are, uh, had after they stopped you know co-directing. Given that both of them seem to have been a bit off in the weeds lately, I think they probably ought to try getting back together. I have no idea what their personal relationship is like, but uh, they they never, aside from that one moment of studio glory, <laughs> uh, and uh, admittedly, uh, uh, Janae having success with uh, with Amelie and to a lesser extent uh, a very long engagement. Um, I don't know. I th- I I think they were better together than they were apart. <laughs> I would agree with that. They, they, a lot of their stuff by themselves is not not so hot. Yeah, no, I, I like to say I wish you guys would, uh, or uh, you guys probably. I think it's probably on YouTube. I saw it ages ago, but uh, uh, the bunker of the last uh, uh, of the last uh, gunshots, or the uh, uh, la bunker de la dernière Raphael, uh, which in this case I think was actually referring to Raphael as uh, the uh, the. Uh, um, NATO warplane, rather than uh, the, its uh, literal translation of gunshots, was actually a really impressive little, I guess, about 20, 25 minute short film in its own right. That was kind of their first uh, 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 live action directorial effort. So that, that's that. absolutely worth hunting up in its own right. And it does have a lot of the aesthetic, more of this one than of uh, than of uh, City of Lost Children, just in that quasi, you know, po- sort of post-apocalyptic thing. It could very easily work uh, in uh, the same um, world overall. Of course, it did, uh, if I recall correctly, it did not have uh, Dominique Pignon. And let's talk about Dominique Pignon. Oh, yes, well, and his face. <laughs> <laughs> Way too many cloud Im- image- imagery, images. It's just too much clown. He... Too much clown. I mean, I like him. I think he seems like a really great guy, and he's super talented with the face and the and the pantomiming and everything. Fantastic, but they yeah, that did kind of wreck that movie for me. I liked him much better in the the other one. He actually looked funnier out of the clown makeup. Oh yeah, that's very that's very often the case. But it's just such a winning performance aside from the clown. Uh... <laughs> Just uh, uh, again, uh, he's a a, uh, a sound, silent comedian. Uh, but uh, just uh, his the 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 absolute you know charm and just overall niceness and decency that he just exudes throughout this movie. He's a character you root for, and uh, 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 just by virtue of being so freaking weird looking, he's an actor you root for. This is not a conventional leading role man. Or uh, leading man role by 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 any usual stretch of the imagination, and I'm pretty sure he played his own musical saw in this as well, which is kind of wonderful. Uh, also, oh, that's nice. Oh yeah, that's cool. I you know, I knew I recognized him, and then I looked it up, and he was in this this movie maybe 10, 15 years ago. I saw in DC called Roman Degare, a French film, where I think it's sort of an ensemble piece, and he plays this guy, and you think because of the way he looks, he's got like he's got sort of a beard in that movie. You think he's this sexual predator, this creep guy, and then as the plot goes along, you realize he's actually a good guy. He's the hero, which is really cool. And but you you naturally just think that because of his face. And anybody <laughs> anybody casting Dominique Pignon as not at least basically okay is doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, by the end of that movie, you love him and you understand why uh, people were dis- were mistrusting him and stuff like that. But it's it's a great movie. I definitely recommend it. 
And uh, I hadn't thought about that movie since I saw it until I saw this guy's face again. I love him. He's such a good actor. Oh, yeah. And you get uh, to yeah, see yeah. him a whole bunch in City of Lost Children. You get to yeah. you get to see a whole bunch of him, uh, a whole bunch in City of Lost Children. But uh, I imagine we'll probably come back, uh, circle back on that after the break. Yeah. Which uh, does anybody have uh, anything else they want to say about Delicatessen before we take our break? I'll take. Well, I tell you. Oh, I was going to say I just said uh, uh, I remembered liking it. Uh, I remembered liking it tremendously the first time I saw it. Granted, it had been ages. I have had the VHS for ages, but uh, I think I only got around to watching it a total of twice uh, in the past because I can remember things fondly and have copies of them and go for decades without watching them anyway. Uh, but uh, this was uh, this was uh, I thought delightful to revisit, and I had forgotten a lot of what I think now are some of the best parts of the movie and so this was uh, this was uh, quite delightful to come back with and seeing it in such close proximity to its follow-up uh, I think kind of improved both of them in my estimation as well but we'll get back to that <laughs> all right well uh, we'll be right back back uh we're going to be talking about the city of lost children next and uh why don't you start us off shane oh so okay so i haven't seen this movie this was on my pile but i vividly vividly remember the box from blockbuster in the 90s i don't I, would it have been dvd or vhs by then i'm not sure but it's just the uh the, the picture of the profile shot of crank or cronk you know wearing his his gear the helmet and it's like you know brown and gray this dingy looking cover and i just remember thinking that cover was so haunting and creepy and scary and, you know, not having any idea what kind of movie it was, uh, never thinking I would watch it. Uh, so I, even though I hadn't seen it, I was, you know, I was very aware of this movie. And full disclosure, when I watched this movie, I was fucking exhausted. <laughs> I watched, I, I'm going to bring this back to the podcast, don't worry. I, I watched it Sunday night after I was away all weekend at my brother's. And uh, he lives on, in, in the country. He has like a, a sort of farmhouse and this great big garden. So we were going through it, uh, looking for stuff to eat for dinner, and I saw these big, beautiful, bright green tomatoes, and I said, can we pick those? He said, sure, and then I looked up, as I said, um, I mentioned, I think, in the last episode when we did fried green tomatoes that I never had fried green tomatoes before, so we picked those green tomatoes, I looked up a recipe, uh, we fried them up, he made like a garlic remoulade to go with them, uh, and they were delicious. I don't, I don't know how they compare to real southern fried green tomatoes, but... They're freaking got, good, aren't they? Yeah, they were good. We got. <laughs> I looked up what I what I hope was an authentic recipe. I mean, he had like artisanal cornmeal that was like red cornmeal or something like that. I don't know if that makes a difference. Um, but they. Were I don't, greasy, I don't figure were it could have hurt. <laughs> yeah. So I mean that that's that's what we did over the weekend. Then I got back Sunday, looked at the clock, realized I had to watch a movie, uh, put this on, and and was just exhausted and and could barely follow it. So that's. That's just my like disclosure, uh, in terms of you know how much I got out of this viewing. Oh yeah, if if you're exhausted watching this film, it's uh, it definitely demands you to pay attention with the uh, mm -hmm. visuals. It's a very visual film, so I can I can see why you might have some issues. Yeah, I, I remember back in the VHS era, it was an extremely distinctive uh, video box. I had. 
encountered the trailer uh, a bit before its U.S. theatrical release. I had seen Delicatessen already by that time. I had, I had, had that uh, drawn to my attention uh, by the, uh, the wonderful offices of the video Watchdog, which was uh, uh, basically my cinema Bible at the time. Um, but uh, no, I, w I had been very much uh, uh, looking forward to it uh, when I first encountered it, uh, I guess when I was in college, I think as a rental VHS. And I remembered at the time just being left a little bit cold uh, by it. Now, granted, I was seeing it, I think, on like a 13-inch TV on VHS uh, with, if I recall correctly, other stuff going on around. It was like some kind of social movie night, and it, it, it just kind of didn't do for me. So I just felt a little bit let down at the time. I actually really loved it uh, on this repeat viewing. This was the first time I'd seen it in ages, but on the big screen that we have in the living room and in the absence of a special distraction, at least while we're watching uh, the movie, I, uh, it, it really worked for me. So this was uh, one of the ones that I've seen before that I've revisited for this podcast that I am most glad uh, to have uh, come back around to. I know. Uh, I I remember that box art as well. I, I remember, and the trailer. We watched it in uh, my media class with Mr. Lawrence back in high school, and uh, it it bewitched me. The uh, the trailer. Uh, there's no dialogue. Now I know there's no dialogue because it's in French, and they were trying to pitch it to an American audience. But having no dialogue in the trailer, I'd never seen that before, and thought that was incredible. Um, and uh, this film, I finally saw it when it came out on uh, on VHS, and uh, and of of the many films that have computer generated imagery in them, this is the one that really made me want to and understand how computer graphics could be used in film. Um, the flea, uh, oh yeah, the smoke, oh, yeah. Those looked incredible. That green yeah. smoke, the dream. Smoke. The green, the oh. green, the green smoke was central to the original trailer. That was the bit that uh, that uh, always really stuck with me uh, there. And the, uh, the tear also. Yeah. Well, so Nate, I want I want to ask you the the fleas was your um so your short film Alter had the fly the close up <laughs> the fly in the frame was that sort of an homage to the fleas? In the yeah, movie? yeah, it was. You got it. I, <laughs> I had never realized that. I did yeah. wonder that. Believe it or not, I was like. <laughs> you think and they're like nah. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's why there's a bit of green and red in the uh in the end shot oh interesting hmm. that's cool Cause... learn something new even about your own filmography every day my goodness okay <laughs> <laughs> no uh the uh i i did find a couple of the digital effects a little bit uh sort of uh plasticky looking but you know that's you know, sort of characteristic and not least for you know, the, the time and the environment that they were working in when they made it in the first place. So I, I didn't mind it. When I minded it was when the effects were kind of plasticky looking uh, later on in Alien Resurrection. But mm -hmm. uh, I, I feel confident we can circle back to that a little bit later on as well. Oh, yeah. I, we, I have thoughts on Alien Resurrection. And it's probably worth talking about as sort of the point where things kind of fell apart for this team who at that point, seemed to have a built-in uh, cult audience. But as we said, as we said in the first half, I, I, I think we can pretty much agree that aside from Amelie, or from, uh, from the, the success of Amelie and Janae having a little bit more success, these two really seem to work better together than they did apart. Yeah, they definitely do. 
I mean, the set, de the set design in this movie is incredible. All, all I could think about, I mean, aside from enjoying the visuals, was how expensive was this movie? It looks massively, like, every single set looked like it had to be, you know, crafted from scratch. Which is, uh, I, I, we didn't see any supplementary, uh, supplementary features for uh, City of Lost Children, but uh, we, there is a wonderful little 13-minute behind-the-scenes bit on the old Lionsgate uh, DVD of Delicatessen that was just behind the scenes shot. And the, the scope of the sets that they built for this, you know, seemingly low budget little, uh, uh, little movie are pretty extraordinary. Uh, the, uh, the, the scale of some of the gags that they pull off in both of these movies. Uh, and by gags, I don't necessarily mean, you know, jokes, although there are jokes, uh, in, in the sequences as well, but just, uh, the, uh, the, the scale of some of the, you know, the, uh, the physical, you know, set based, effects work is really extraordinary in spots yeah i love the miniature work in this film because the using force perspective for the background miniatures is just it looks it, it makes it get it gives it a fantastical look that i really love yeah i mean i can definitely pick out some spots here and there where they uh where, where they did some optical printing and some compositing but for the, for the most part a lot of stuff i can't tell whether it's miniature or full size or what have you mm -hmm. Especially in in a lot of shots, uh, like uh, particularly the bit with the uh, the sermon in the Cyclops's lair, uh, I mean that's a visual that you can't fake, can you? I mean you could now probably, but then in the nineties in France, I don't know. <laughs> well, it looked mostly like people sitting on like one on top of another, kind of stacked on ladders. So I and you couldn't really see what they were sitting on. It seemed I don't know. I mean you're talking about the back behind. Well, no, I, I, I'm just talking about that, that, you know, impossible little room with those in, <laughs> dementedly steep, you know, sides. That looked like nightmares I used to have as a kid. It I was, th uh, I think that, um, well, I think that was the stern of the ship. No, that makes sense. That, uh, that, 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 that could be. It's just, they somehow put in like, you know, individual two by fours in alarmingly steep, uh, uh, angles, uh, to get everybody to be able to sit in it. So, right. Uh, I don't know if they did any kind of uh, you know ingenious reuse of of uh, of sets throughout the movie. I I, I never pulled uh, pulled myself out of the movie long enough to notice it. No, I didn't notice any either. I don't know. I think some of the slides because there was like a slide in the uh, ocean layer and there was a slide in the ship. Yeah, just and one cover looked... one covered with coal, one not covered with coal. You see, right. yeah, oh, I, yeah. I, yeah, that you bring that to my attention now. I Sorry. Even, no, 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 no. It's, it's ruined right. the movie. Oh no, man. No, 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 well, I'm going to ruin no. it a little bit more. You were talking about miniatures. Uh, they did not even need a map for that minefield because <laughs> they were right smack in there. They weren't under the water. Aren't depth? Aren't those actually depth charges? And they'd be underneath, or not depth? I mean, they'd be mines. They'd be underneath the water, and a ship would brush over the top of them. Yeah. But those things were huge. Yeah. Do you think there was any miniature work there? Or do you think they built those to scale? Yeah, they, they were in no danger. Yeah, they were in no danger. They didn't uh, need to find the, the Asian man with the tattoo on his head. They, my, my, they feeling my feeling was that the, uh, the map was not, you know, it, it was a map of the minefield, but the function of the map most particularly was to actually get out of the minefield at the closest point to the... Uh, it felt like a disused oil rig or something to that extent, rather than just uh, end up someplace random out at sea. 
Okay. In other in other words, the map was to the destination. It was not a map of the minefield per se. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought they said they needed the map so they could get through the minefield. I thought so too. <laughs> yeah. He's trying to save it. Sorry. That's fine. <laughs> it's it's fine either way. The movie is gorgeous. It is. It's yeah. it is delightful. I I enjoyed it. Um, I I say I can't believe I hadn't seen it before, but I kind of can. I mean, I thinking about my situation back then uh my husband didn't like to read anything especially subtitles so <laughs> i'm pretty sure that was gonna get missed but it was so good it was so good it was just a well it's the way you talk about prometheus uh, jenner it's just a weird blanket just made for me i just loved every bit of it <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it, it did, and this was the bit that uh, that didn't really register with me. It, it does actually have a sort of a moving plot going on under the hood, you know, anchored by a deeply, deeply humane, uh, really beautiful, not silent but monotonal performance by uh, by Ron Perlman, one of his uh, one of his better dramatic. Movies. Yeah, uh, I thought I thought it might be silent for a while, but then he started speaking. But you know, he spoke in very simple sentences. Not least because I'm not sure he's a native, uh, a, a native uh, French speaker. Of course, yeah. it's. A, it, they it's did also... bring up that he sounded that his speech was funny, that it was strange. So I think uh, he I was. Think oh, sorry, I interrupted. The little you. girl was talking about, and it's okay. The little girl was talking to her friends. Well, her, you know, uh, cohort, co-conspirator, co <laughs> and, and she says he does speak funny or does talk weird or something like that. So I think that was sort of to cover up his uh, French as a second language. And you know, his his little hairstyle is a hairstyle I've only ever seen in like comic strips. Not even yeah. comic <laughs> books, but comic strips. Um, and I think that's an interesting choice. Tintin. That sort of, yes. Yeah, like stuff like that. That lends, lends to his sort of his, his childlike manner, I think, which, which is kind of cool. Well, as befitting Caro's uh, 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 provenance coming from uh, from uh, Matard and, uh, and and the French comic scene in general, this is an almost perfect visualization of that sort of general style of uh, of uh, comics, rivaled maybe by the Matard Chronicles uh, series from later on, some segments of the heavy metal movie. Uh, Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets, I I, I think, uh, comes really close as well, but doesn't have the sheer bug fuckery of uh, of uh, visuals in this one, just by virtue of not being, I don't know, I don't know if I want to call this steampunk or diesel punk, because it's definitely got some bits of both uh, built into it. But yeah, no, Perlman's performance in this uh, is just beautiful, and I, I look at this as forming a strange sort of natural duology, not in, it, at least as far as goes, Perlman's performances, not so much with uh, uh, Delicatessen, of course, uh, but with his work for Guillermo del, Torno, uh, del Toro a few years earlier in Kronos, uh, where, of course, he was speaking uh, Mexican Spanish. Uh, yeah. Again, I, again, heavily accented in a very strange way, but uh, the, I, I think that would make sort of a fun double feature in its own right. Uh, although Delicatessen is a much more natural companion to this one. The the difference I think is, as a narrative as much as anything else is Delicatessen has some lovely little bits, uh, but it it doesn't really sort of faint at anything too terribly profound. Aside from how do you make a charming movie about post apocalyptic cannibals? <laughs> uh, wh whereas this one did have 
sort of a, a much deeper human aspect uh, that I got on this viewing that I, I think I didn't really carry away from uh, from my previous viewing. And I and I like the sort of uh, uh, face turn for uh, for Jean Claude Dreyfus, uh, Le Boucher from uh, Delicatessen, as a uh, repentant and ultimately kind of heroic uh, character in this one. Oh yeah. Or or at least vengeful, but on the uh, but but uh, in a way that fainted toward justice. He he was the flea man, right? He yeah. was the flea man. Yeah. And the... of course, and of course, the octopus is an even more horrible villain than uh, than the actual villain of the movie, which is you know kind of amazing in its own right. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure I really see Kronk as as a villain per se. It's more like a consequence of the uh, of the scientist's actions. Uh, the octopus is definitely, to me, the main villain of of the film. She's so they those two are so they are frightening together. Uh, I watched this with my daughter Amelia, um, who was like terrified every time they both did so. They would do something like uh, one would take a drag from a cigarette, the other would blow out the smoke. That always yeah. sticks with me. Yeah, <laughs> you got you got no idea how much they're sharing under the hood there. Yeah. Yeah, they... one of them scratches the other one's arm without even being asked. <laughs> and yeah, the way they're... their their arms are just going out, grabbing at any anything the kids are dropping onto their desk, like uh, money and jewels and whatnot. Their arms are overlapping, crisscrossing like spaghetti, and they're just doing it so quickly. It's a very inter, very uh, very very cool performance. Now they did have different last names, the actresses, but one of them could have been married, and they might have been twins. I don't know. But they looked a lot alike. I was about to say that's yeah. what I was thinking was one of them was a married name in all probability, yeah. or at least that, that that was my guess. But uh, yeah, or or both, you know, could could be. Yeah. Even so, just a, an amazing physical performance and a truly diabolical, I guess, set of characters. Yeah. Or or it, it's difficult to think of them as a single entity. But yeah, you know, I mean, of course, that ended up being their undoing at the end, which was <laughs> one one of the. Uh, you kind of see it coming, but it's it's very poetic, <laughs> especially after you know the horrible horrible moment where they made one turn on Miette. That was just I, the I just did the not saddest just the saddest moment in the movie. I did not remember that moment because it had been a while since I'd seen the film, but I did not remember uh, him turning on Miette and and choking her. That was very upsetting. That was a and hard they kept, scene. They left it going for it was almost it was probably a minute and a half of that of the dogs, you know, yeah, getting it you know, on and the tear flying and this and that. I mean, it it took a long time. It was definitely stretched out, but oh, horrifying. Oh, I, I want to actually bring up. Um, I'll admit that I was on the edge of squick every time. I, Miet had an obvious. Uh, crush on one it was you know it was she asked him well, you know are, are you getting what kind of wife are you gonna get and and that and was like jenner she wants the job <laughs> <laughs> and then he kept gently saying you're my little sister you're my little sister and that helped uh, even it out but i'll admit i was kind of like i think i was Girl. getting a little i think i was actually getting a little bit of a leon the professional vibe uh between the two of them there yes as well, i which... thought of that one too it was it's, but it was just, it's just the edge of squick. It was it's, French. It's, it's French. It's French, and it's in the nineties. When those girls <laughs> run uh, topless out of the out of the um, 
bordello. Yeah. And I was like, oh, the French. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, I think it was more like a burlesque or a can can. I mean, it was uh, entree des artistes. Uh, they did have they did have entree. Of course, that could be. Of course, the they, of course, uh, artiste could be a metaphor there or a euphemism. But uh, even so. <laughs> No, I, uh, again, the the scene with the uh, the scene with the tear setting off another Rube Goldbergish uh, chain of events uh, prompted my comment to Jane. You know, I think strictly speaking, this is one of the very few movies where coincidence can get away with redounding to the advantage of our protagonists. And I said, no, it's fate. <laughs> it felt like fate, which it is so, which is a fair so, oh, so impossible that it had to happen. You know, there's no yeah. excuses for it. Oh, I mean, no, that's that's absolutely a fair way of looking. I mean, dogs don't just. <laughs> well, I guess they do, but I mean, it doesn't. It rarely redounds to anybody's advantage unless they're raising puppies or trying to breed puppies. But uh, yeah, yeah, it was all the series of it to me for it to loop back around like that. It had to be fate, not coincidence. I mean that that. That that works. Uh, that that works narratively, but in terms of the construction of the thing, if, if you're looking at it just as a series of beats, it's a series of coincidences. But as I say, that's fine. It is a fated series of coincidences, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. But I, okay. I, again, again, going going back to that sort of <laughs> gleeful over articulation of the schemes involved in the thing. Uh, I think also of the uh, the uh, uh, you know sending uh, our uh, Miet and one. Uh, to uh, to become a, a midnight snack for the fishes, by putting enormous baskets of you know fetid fish, so that the seagulls uh, nothing gets done easy in this. So that the <laughs> seagulls can can can, uh, can eat the fishes, gradually reducing the weight of the baskets to eventually uh, dump uh, our guys in the water. It's uh, it, it, it it there there is. As uh, as Shane suggested, a very sort of comic strip or comic bookish uh, imagination behind the artifices that go into this thing, which is, I think, the most appealing aspect, really, of both of these movies, is they get stuff done, but they don't get stuff done in a way that other movies do and or would most it's of the like, time. I mean, it's like if Wally e. Coyote was successful. I was going to say, with the possible exception of the Final Destination pictures where they worked. Um... <laughs> I mean that scene with the with the, them standing on the planks with the fish that that be, that brought me back to delicatessen. That's instead of a suicide trap, that's another elaborate death trap. <laughs> I, I, I guess they just enjoy doing. I mean they're fun to watch. I guess the uh, Caro and uh, Janae just enjoy setting up these elaborate ways for people to die. Yeah, that's definitely a visual touch. They go back to a lot the the Rube Goldberg thing. They uh, they really love it. There there are a lot of uh, signatures that they they use. Uh, circus folk. Um, yeah, and uh, another this one. Is, this isn't really Rube Goldberg, but I love that little heist with the mouse, the magnet, and the cat. The way they get that key out. Yeah, that's like a little, just a little, little set piece that was just delightful. Well, I mean, they were cool. actually saying, why don't they just stick a piece of paper underneath it as they push the key out? But that wouldn't have been nearly as charming <laughs> or complicated. The compl- or complicated. The the, co- the complication and the convolution is a feature, not a bug in this case. So yeah, no, that was that 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 was. Doing something in a way that you don't normally see it done, which uh, again is very much a signature of, I think, both of these movies. Do you, does anybody remember uh, when we were talking about uh, uh, on a previous episode, uh, Midsummer and uh, 
and the uh, Apostle, I mentioned that there was a camera technique that had become very popular in that type of film where the camera turns upside down slowly so that the, it looks like the world, it happens in synchronicity too. It happened in this movie. And I think that they did it before it was hip. <laughs> got, got, got to that, uh, uh, got to that earlier than the, uh, than the horde. Well, yeah, no, I, no vi- visually again, the, the, uh, the design of the thing, I mean, just given the stuff that they're trying to get away with in this and the fact that, even in uh, with a fairly indulgent European budget, they can't have had that much money to throw at this. Uh, it had to be meticulous. I would love, love, love to see the storyboards for both of these movies oh, because yeah. I because I fully imagine that you could slap them between a pair uh, a pair of pieces of cardboard and sell them as a, 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 as a contiguous narrative uh, in their own right. Yeah, those would be and, and, and gorgeous. Again, and again, that's that's I think going to be a lot more Caro than it is uh, Genet, Although Genet was kind of you know riding you know, the reins on the uh, on the actual narrative of the thing. Well, he he was the kind of the lead on Alien Resurrection as well. Since uh, I I think I think that Caro had uh, basically the same art direction position, except it means something different here than it does in France, and it doesn't you don't get a title card with your director here. Well, uh- that was the thing is, as I understand it, they were actually offered Alien Resurrection jointly, but it led to a bit of a falling out uh, because uh, Janae thought it was a great opportunity and uh, Caro didn't want to do something with studio American studio level creative control. And it's very possible he was right. So he ended up taking kind of a low key uh, demotion, did a bit of work on the set design, bit of, uh, did a bit of work on the art direction, but I don't think he's credited as lead on either, if I recall correctly. Okay. And uh, they sort of you know parted ways over that one. Uh, there were there was at least one amusing uh, callback to uh, City of Lost Children uh, that I, I had heard about, but I had never noticed it uh, uh, myself, at least until I saw City of Lost Children this time. Which uh, which was uh, Dominique Pignon's uh, line? Uh, who are you expecting, Santa Claus? <laughs> which was not only a reference to all of the Santa Clauses coming down that damn chimney and those poor kids' nightmares, but also one of the specific lines that yet get, gets when she surprise reappears uh, on um, uh, uh, on uh, on one. And of course, uh, Dominique Pignon and Ron Perlman don't share a whole lot of screen time uh, in this one. But the the couple of moments of byplay that they have together, as uh, as uh, one is chucking clones down the uh, <laughs> down the slide, uh, <laughs> it, it is again a sort of a sort of a charming. And you can tell even in those couple of moments that they've got very solid chemistry, and that absolutely carried over to Alien Resurrection. I think the bits between the two of them are some of the best stuff in that admittedly iffy movie um i think one of the major problems with alien resurrection well other than the studio interference was the script itself i i think that script was extremely problematic that was uh originally a joss whedon script. it was originally a joss whedon script but it got radically revised in progress as it went along uh going back uh, again calling back to uh, one of our uh, earlier episodes uh, I think probably around, or at least a little bit earlier than the time that uh, Shane ran across one of the early drafts of uh, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Uh, back when 
scripts just got posted on the internet. I think the website that I usually ended up going to was called like Drew's Scriptorama or something like that. <laughs> so I made the mistake that I will never, ever, ever freaking repeat after having uh, had this happen both with Alien Resurrection and with Dogma right around the same time. Never read the fucking script before you watch the movie, for the love of, if the movie's actually on the way, for the love of God, because the script was actually a lot better than what ended up in the movie. I, I would I would disagree with that. I didn't I didn't think the script was that great to begin with. The entire ending with the the weird piece of farm equipment on Earth made absolutely no sense to me. I don't know. I thought that that kind of worked, and I liked the idea of. I mean, I it's one of those things where I kind of instantly had an idea of how it could have worked better. Basically, yeah. they should they should have had both the uh, the newborn birthed out of the the birthing sack. But they also should have had that big weird tick thing that uh, that uh, uh, Whedon described chest burst out of the queen. Because having something chest burst out of the queen is something that some alien movie should should have at some point. Mm. But there were some scenes that, a- admittedly, it's in my imagination as much as anything else, because obviously there there were no visuals. But there were a lot of scenes that felt a lot more impressive on the page than what ended up getting on up on the screen. And most of the places where the dialogue got changed from the original screenplay in the progress of the, uh, the film, I felt like it got changed for the worse. Uh, I don't think it helped a lot that the director in that case was not a native English speaker. I think it may have actively redounded to the disadvantage of no. a lot of sort of riding rain over the line deliveries as much as anything else. You can't give hardcore art house, like, creative Frenchman a Joss Whedon script. That's just, <laughs> that's that just is, not I, mix. I will absolutely allow that as kind of a fundamental mismatch in its own right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm no, kind of glad it, I, I, I stopped at Alien 3, so I've got no thoughts on this. I'm kind of glad I stopped there. <laughs> it's, it's like I say, I... I enjoy Alien Resurrection. I don't think it's especially good. I still think it's the least of that series, and that includes the AVP movies. <laughs> I haven't seen those either. I, I like I like it better either. than Requiem myself, but I am on record record as one of the world's biggest fans of uh, Aliens vs Predator Requiem. Just taking it as sort of a gleefully nasty aliens as you know, or sorry, humans as cannon fodder circling of the series back not to the original alien but rather to all of those you know dark nasty aliens have come down from space to uh, reproduce with our women alien ripoffs that came out between alien and aliens which i happen also to venerate you know nasty shit like returns of the aliens deadly spawn aka the deadly spawn or alien prey even though that was actually made before uh, alien it was released after alien in the united states that sort of thing but again sort of a long divergence the point is i actually really like aliens versus predator requiem for reasons that have nothing to do with the rest of the alien series as such see for for me with alien resurrection the really the main reason i actually enjoy that film and rewatch it is because of the design of the newborn itself uh, the newborn. It's so weird. It's so it's it's really I can't take my eyes off it. It's like a it's like a train wreck. But, <laughs> but I don't know if it's in a good way or a bad way. It's haunting. It's a haunting design. And uh, sort of in the, sort of in the the way that Deadpool was looked haunting. Uh, <laughs> 
Yeah. No, I, I, I personally, I would have liked the, uh, the newborn or uh, going with that idea of having the one that was birthed out of the birthing sack and the other one uh, chest bursting out of the queen. I wanted the one, uh, or, or the the one born out of the birthing sack uh, to save everybody from the one that chest burst. That's, oh, yeah. That that's my sort of instant. Uh, uh, how they should have done that uh, for for that. And I've had that lurking around the hindquarters of my brain for a very long time. Instead, we get Brad Dourif doing a monologue, which is a good thing, in in and of itself, but uh, might well, not that, replace that was my least plot part. <laughs> Yeah, maybe uncomfortable. It's it is. It's a weird, weird segment. Uh, what what does he what does he say? It's a beautiful baby. Beautiful. This is butterfly. for you. That's it, butterfly. <laughs> yeah, that's a, yeah. This is for you. Ripley. I mean, it, it, uh, I remember. I just it, like, it's oh, such an odd wait, movie. It would have worked better if it was in no way connected to the uh, to the uh, to the Ellen Ripley trilogy. If it, they had just gone off in another direction with other characters. I mean, granted, Sigourney Weaver is great in the movie, but she's delivering some really questionable dialogue. Yeah. <laughs> and she did make that basket, you know, the one she threw behind herself. Yeah. She did, she did do that. On something she did like it on the th- every uh, On every interview. Yeah, no, by all accounts, it was something like the third take. And, uh, and if you look closely, you can see Ron Perlman almost screwing it up because he just, go, oh, uh, just completely squeezed but they managed to cut away fast enough that uh, that it doesn't become a problem. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, no, the the the, the byplay between Perlman and uh, Pignon is one of the more enjoyable parts of that movie. It's uh, one one of the bits that does uh, kind of stick with me. Well, uh, going all the way back to City of Lost Children, <laughs> does anybody have any final thoughts before we close out our show on City of Lost Children, or I guess Alien Resurrection? Well, you know, I said, you know, these movies didn't really click for me, but I still think they're worth seeing because, you know, not everybody, not everybody's going to be the same. There's, there's so much to look at. There's so many ideas, both visually and narratively, that I think, you know, there's a good chance that you'll like it, even if it isn't necessarily, you know, my thing and doesn't really click with me. So I'll, I'll leave my thoughts at that. And I'll say that um, Delicatessen is fun, uh, a little clown heavy, but fun. <laughs> and then, uh, of course, uh, City of Lost Children is just delightful. I mean, it's just got so much heart and it's just really fun and interesting. And again, like Shane said, um, that uh, you could just see so many cool tricks as, or gags, as Jenner had said earlier. No, I'm going to say this is uh, this is one of those things where I think a lot of what you get out of it is going to be dependent, or at least my experience was a lot of it was dependent upon the context in which I saw these movies. In a, uh, in a uh, 4-3 aspect ratio on a very small screen, uh, I liked Delicatessen a lot more than I liked uh, City of Lost Children. On a big screen uh, with you know a measure of widescreen involved, uh, I still liked Delicatessen, but I found kind of less meat to carry away to go back to uh, Shane's sort of idea, but uh, but City of Lost Children really did kind of sing to me. So uh, so I think this is one of those things, not least for the visual design as much as anything else, is really going to benefit by be, uh, be, being seen uh, as large as possible uh, and on as detailed uh, a means of viewing as possible. These, these, these movies would suck if you watched them on a phone. Uh, the bigger you see them, the better they're going to do for you, I think. All right, yeah, visual feast for the eyes. 
That'll about do it for us here on What's on the Pile. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at What's on the Pile, or visit our website, whatsonthepile.com. Thanks for hanging out. Turns out they're more closely related to uh, cacti than, uh, you know, the earth primates, but... Deep in the forgotten corners of our galaxy, a mighty space hulk blazes through the stars. Its crew, a motley gang of misfits who are just out for a good time. He's sparking for fuck's sake. They have harnessed the mysterious fuel called nostalgia. And we're off, alright. By remembering the cartoons of their youth. Now, standing in their way, the evil Emperor Zorbak, who just wants to shut their screw down and conquer every planet along the way. Thankfully, their ship holds a weapon with enough firepower to restore the balance. Yes, you neglected the anime space cannon. They are. The Bastards of the Universe. I think you know damn well who we are. Thursdays at 8. Let's cast this pod. Only on Twitch.